Hello, everybody. I'm Pam Pastor, host of the Grace and Peace of God Love Wins podcast. I'm happy that you found me, but more importantly, I am thrilled that you have found Jesus. Friends, there is power in the name of Jesus. And as we journey together, we will be unleashing discoveries of how to turn hearts of stone into ones of moldable clay for the potter Jesus to transform. Hopefully, you'll join me and others each week as we adventure and explore life together. And periodically, friends, we'll delve into my mailbag answering questions from listeners just like you. So if you have a question, make sure and email it to me at pampastorcopywriting at gmail.com. Well, friends, as we prepare to enter into God's presence today, allow me to speak a blessing over your life. This blessing or benediction, as it's known, comes from Moses's brother, priest Aaron. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Well, I want to welcome everyone back. If you've been following along over the next or over the past several days, uh, we're going to wrap up our series looking at generational curses, false witnesses, and false teachings according to what the Bible says. So we're going to explore what the Bible tells us about each of these things. And before we get started. I do have a question that came in from KPN Kansas asking why God is so adamant forbidding occult activities. Well, KP, first and foremost, thank you for your question. I'm sure you're not the only listener that has this question. And we know that God is love. He is just and forgiving, right? But why give him areas of our life that we must repent from? When we participate in any occult activity, we're demonstrating to God a basic lack of trust and love in Him. We're telling Him by our actions that we have more faith in the world system than in Him. We've been told that He views the occult as a sinful practice. And yes, we can repent and ask for forgiveness as long as he has not hardened our hearts to the point that forgiveness is no longer an option. So with that said, please embrace what I'm about to share. When we open the doorway or the portal to the occult, we're standing in agreement with Satan and his demonic fallen angel army. And good people who are kind often find that they get caught up in the snare or the trap of Satan every day. This is why it's mandatory that our families pass this information down the generational line. Satan's influences come in many forms, and they're getting more and more deceptive, conniving, and manipulative all the time. Stop and think about the movies you watch, whether by streaming or television in general, or the books you read. And how about games that have an underlying demonic emphasis on fortune telling? Or think about the Ouija board here. And have you ever been to a seance or perhaps watched one that was a scene from a scary movie? 
Well, we've discussed in episode nine, the ad for the Spider-Man movie that listed at the bottom of the page. It really cast a spell. That is so telling that it's blatantly being placed right in plain sight. So folks, the urgent message here is that we need to steer clear of the desire to know the future or the belief that superstition is harmless to influence our decision to participate. These are all counterfeits for God's best for us. Their root system is embedded in evil as opposed to God's belief system that is rooted in truth, wisdom, and love. And this is another reason we need to know whom our kids' friends are and what families they come from. Invariably, either our child will be a good influence on their friends or their friends will be an influence upon our children. And there's a mental sharpness that comes from being around good people. And whenever there is a meeting of the minds, people can achieve an increase in clarity and vision that are refined and shaped into brilliant ideas and strategies. These types of people will always seek to elevate and uplift each other by stimulating thoughts. God's children utilize this method by checking their egos at the door They attack ideas and not people. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17, Solomon teaches us, As iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. So KP, thank you again for the question. I hope that answer helps to bring forth clarity and focus within your life. Well, friends, here's what we said about the occult and God's view over the course of our series thus far sorcery is using power gained from evil spirits, while divination is the practice of seeking knowledge of the future or the unknown by supernatural means. And some diviners are also known as specialists who interpret these messages expecting a binary answer such as yes or no, favorable or unfavorable as a result. Now, necromancy is the act of conjuring spirits of the dead for purposes of magically revealing the future or influencing the course of events. The Bible does refer to necromancy as divination, sorcery, and spiritism. Soothsaying is the act of foretelling events, or it's also known as predictive prophecy. Recall that we said a person who utilizes this approach is called a prognosticator. The word that is representative of an omen is called portent. Now, omens historically are good or bad. Typically, they fall into the bad category. Think ominous. In ancient times, the people believed, and some still do today, that omens bring divine messages from the gods. Our scripture has hammered home the fact that God does not look at the occult favorably. This isn't my opinion. This is straight from the word of God. With that said, we learn that the Israelites were shown mercy by God when they repented. God would demonstrate agape love as he justified and sanctified those previously abhorred due to their sins. 
Nejustified means to be declared not guilty and sanctified is to be made whole. Over the past three days, I provided numerous examples of God showing his disgust with occult activities. He even ranked them alongside of emphasize. Burnt offerings of children is loathsome. We need to view all occult activities as loathsome too. We're not to pick or choose a rank and order categorical list. The Lord dispossesses and destroys those who practice these activities. They fall under his judgment. He says, you shall not learn to do these abominations and people who practice these activities are not allowed to stay among God's people. It's unknown who the author of 2 Kings chapter 17 verses 16 and 17 was. Possibly it may have been Jeremiah, but here we learn they defied all the commands of the Lord their God and made two calves from metal. They set up an Asherah pole and worshipped Baal and all the forces of heaven. They even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire. They consulted fortune tellers and used sorcery and sold themselves to evil, arousing the Lord's anger. What was the forces of heaven that the people were worshiping? This referred to the Canaanite practice of worshiping the sun, moon, and constellations. These were Assyrian gods that were being added to their religion. And as with other occult practices, such as witchcraft, fortune telling, and black magic, these things were forbidden by God because in them, people were seeking other avenues for power and guidance, which were totally separate from God, his law, and his word. Now, the prophet Isaiah would later utter this word and remind the people of complete destruction that would come upon them by engaging in these activities. And the people of God have always had to take care in spiritually unfriendly world. Israel was warned about becoming like her neighbors when she inherited the promised land. In the book of Romans chapter 12 verse 2, Paul exhorted to the church on this very subject by saying, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do. And you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. So now let's take a look at King Manasseh and his rule in Judea. Manasseh became the 13th legitimate king of Judah and led the people back into idolatry, even putting idols in the house of God that Solomon had dedicated. King Manasseh followed the example of his grandfather Ahaz more than that of his father. He adopted the wicked practices of the Babylonians and Canaanites, including sacrificing his own son. He did not listen to the words of God's prophets, but willfully led his people into sin. Those who pay no attention to the words of God will be seduced by evil. We learn in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 6, 
Manasseh even sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing him to anger. And one could argue that Manasseh was the epitome of an evil king, and he angered God with his outrageous sin. Which occult practices specifically was he engaging in? We've learned sorcery and divination, consulting mediums and psychics. He was doing all of that. Just like today and back in Manasseh's day, these activities were strictly forbidden and the king was well aware of this fact, yet he still chose to disobey God. Manasseh not only sacrificed his own son, but he was also responsible for killing a mass of innocent people, including the prophet Isaiah. He went on to rebuild the high places so idolatry could resume, and he worshipped the host to heaven mentioned earlier rather than God. He also immersed himself in the occult practices and human sacrifices. As a final act of perversity, he brought idols into God's temple. Even so, Second Chronicles tells us that when Manasseh prayed and repented, God heard him. And although King Manasseh was sitting upon the earthly throne, God was still in charge. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 25. I am the one who exposes the false prophets as liars by causing events to happen that are contrary to their predictions. I cause wise people to give bad advice, thus proving them to be fools. You see, God frustrated the signs of the babblers and he would drive the diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. God and God alone frustrated the plans of the false prophets while confirming the words of his prophet Isaiah. Next, we read about the prophet Isaiah poking fun at people following false teachings. He even says, perhaps you'll be able to profit. I can hear him laughing after he makes that statement. In Isaiah chapter 47, verses 12 through 14, Isaiah says, Stand now with your enchantments and your multitude of your sorceries in which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counselors. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Now, astrologers believe that heaven is sliced into 12 sections. Each section represented a zodiac sign. Heavenly bodies rotated through the signs, and in doing so, events would or would not occur. This directly was tied to the fate of people and nations. God is not mocked, friends, and he clearly states in the Bible one's destiny for being a part of false teachings. 
people will be continuing this practice and worshiping idols through till the day of the Lord, beginning with the rapture, then the seven-year tribulation, and finally through to the 1,000 years of Christ's second return to earth, which still may not awaken them according to Isaiah. This is a frightening proposition. Thinking that evil may prevail over our loved ones is a difficult concept to grasp. God pleads with us to turn from evil and repent, meaning turn from our former ways of sin with a contrite and humble heart asking for genuine forgiveness. And I would just as a side note recommend, go ahead and and read Uh, Psalm 51. It's a great psalm that covers forgiveness. From what we've learned over this four-part series, it's imperative that we test the spirits of people to make sure they're indeed speaking for God. How do we do this? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Paul teaches us, you know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know how to discern what is truly from God. No one speaking by the Spirit of God can curse Jesus, and no one is able to say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. It's true. Anyone can claim to speak for God, and we're shown throughout the word false teachers. But Paul gives us a litmus test to identify and discern whether people are indeed messengers for God. We need to ask, does this person profess Jesus as God's son? We must not be naive and accept all people who claim to speak on behalf of God. After we test their credentials, then we can find out about their teachings of the word of God. In 1 Kings, we learn about the appeal of idols. On the surface, the lives of the kings don't make sense. How could they run to idolatry so fast when they had God's word? They at least had the Old Testament, they had the prophets of old, and the example of David. When we look at the appeal of idols, we find power, pleasure, passion, praise, and popularity outlining idolatry. You see, power is seen because the people wanted freedom from authority of both God and the priest. They wanted their religion to fit their lifestyle, not their lifestyle to fit their religion. Typically, people do not want to answer to a greater authority. We've seen this truth infiltrate our society more and more as of late. And instead of having power over others, God wants us to have the Holy Spirit's power to help others. Pleasure is exalted in idol worship through sensuality without responsibility or guilt. People acted out the vicious and sensuous personalities of the gods they worshipped and gained approval for their degraded lives. People are known to deify pleasure, seeking it at the expense of everything else. Instead of seeking pleasure that leads to long-range disaster, God calls us to seek the kind of pleasure that leads to long-term rewards.
and passion would reduce mankind to little more than animals. The people did not have to be viewed as unique individuals, but could be exploited sexually, politically, and economically. Like animals, these people let physical drives and passion rule them instead of seeking passion that exploits others. God calls us to redirect our passions to areas that build others up. And finally, praise and popularity were the replacement for the high and holy nature of God. These other gods were more of a reflection of human nature, who were culturally suitable to the people. These gods no longer required sacrifice from the people, instead only appeasement. And oftentimes sacrifice is seen as self-inflicted punishment, making no sense. Success is to be sought at all cost. Instead of us seeking praise for ourselves, God calls us to praise him and those who honor him. Quickly, we're going to cover Saul's conversion to the Apostle Paul. And this is a high-level overview so that I can bring you up to speed quickly. Saul was born in Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. He was born in the year 5 AD. He was a Jewish Pharisee leader who was vehemently opposed to Christians as he viewed them as a threat to Judaism. Saul had been educated by the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel and was among the top of his Jewish contemporaries. He was responsible for the imprisonment and killings of many early followers of Jesus. He even authorized the stoning of Stephen, who had been the first evangelical follower for Christ. Church members fled to other nearby cities rather than risking their safety. Saul would create havoc for the church by entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison, even though no crime had been committed. He was ruthless. There was a false perception that the Pharisees and Sadducees would lose their power to Christianity. The scope of Satan's deception was great. But God would step in and intervene, utilizing these massive persecution efforts for good through evangelism for the world. Saul journeyed near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him in heaven. Then he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice was in Hebrew, so Saul recognized the Lord. He was told to arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. When Saul opened his eyes and stood up, he saw no one. His sight was gone for three days. He chose to neither eat nor drink during this time. And a disciple named Ananias was at Damascus. The Lord told him where Saul would be and to lay hands on him while he was praying for restoration of his sight. As expected, Ananias had heard how much harm Saul had caused among the saints. God assured him Saul was a chosen vessel. Still, he wondered why he should talk with the enemy of God. Saul would both suffer and serve for Christ going forward. Old friends became enemies and enemies became friends. Ananias restored Saul's eyesight and baptized him as instructed. 
Now, Saul was not one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus. However, he was handpicked by Jesus himself. And Luke provides us with the early accounts of the formation and subsequent growth of the early Christian church, known as the founding of Christianity and the expansion of faith. Christ provides the apostles with post-ascension instructions for furtherment of the gospel. Apologetics would emerge as the need for presenting and defending the gospel was revealed. As the early Christian church grew from the direction given them by Christ to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations with the gospel, a new or many new challenges arose. Jerusalem at this time numbered between 20 to 25,000 disciples. The growth was rapid. The church's structure needed assistance handling their expansion to care for the needs of the body of Christ. The apostles enacted a plan. They would choose seven godly men to handle all administrative details. Focusing on one of these men, Stephen, we learn he was a great defender of Jesus. This natural ability led him to become one of two renowned preachers. He was of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This plan began in Jerusalem for the office of deacons serving in the church that still occurs today. And why is it important to understand the roots of the early Christian church and prominent people? Here's why. From what is recorded in history, Stephen was reverent, blameless, a true man of God. He was exactly the type of person a rival enemy of God would want to destroy. So what happened to Stephen? Well, Stephen was falsely accused of blasphemy against Moses and against God. The people planted false witnesses to testify against Stephen. These same allegations were used against Jesus too. The religious zealots of the day were the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They knew if Christianity continued its upward trajectory for the kingdom of heaven, they ultimately would lose power over the people. Stephen was seized and brought before the council. Looking steadfastly at him, they saw his face as the face of an angel. The four charges against Stephen were blaspheming God, blaspheming Moses, and the law, and that of the temple. Stephen was allowed to provide remarks surrounding the charges brought forth against him. He told the council it was their own ancestors, so here we're talking generations, who were disobedient to the law, thus they were the true blasphemers. Stephen additionally addresses the council, charging them with having received the law from God and failing to keep it. Having heard this accusation meant either the council would repent and be made whole, sanctified with Christ, or judgment would ensue. Stephen's accusers did not repent. They became even more outraged. But Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazing into heaven and seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Crying out with a loud unifying voice, Stephen was cast out of the city and stoned to death. The witnesses laid down their clothes at Saul's feet. Stephen called upon Jesus to receive his spirit. Kneeling down, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And then he died. Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. Had Stephen not prayed for his persecutors, the church may not have expanded out of Jerusalem or known Saul, who would later become Paul, or most historic events, they require an impetus. And Stephen clearly is this one. And the story of Saul is so important as it relates to false teachers. This was an area that Saul had to contend with often. And we learn of a time when Saul and a follower of Jesus named Barnabas were ministering at a church in Antioch. The Holy Spirit instructed them to be called away for specific work. They arrived in Salamis, where they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. The apostle John was assisting them during this time. Upon arriving in Paphos, the men found a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. He was also called Elimas, meaning the enlightened one. Now, Elimas was with the proconsul named Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. Proconsul means a governor of a province in ancient Rome, having much of the authority of a consul. Now, the proconsul called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And then Saul made it known the hand of the Lord was upon Elimas, and he would be made blind for a short time, not seeing the sun. As a dark mist fell upon him, he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. We're told that then the proconsul believed. He was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. Barnabas and Saul became the Christian church's first two missionaries. As a learned scholar, Saul was granted access to preach the word of God in the Jewish synagogues to those versed in scriptures. The Jews plotted to kill him. Each time I read about the plot to kill Saul, I am reminded of what fear can do to a person. The acronym most of us have heard is false evidence appearing real, fear. It's most certainly fitting here. Back in this era, it was not unusual for the proconsul to send for a meeting with people that were newly arrived within the city. For Elemis, 
He knew that Barnabas and Saul were a threat to this false prophet and ministry of mass deception. Why was Elymas so afraid? He knew if the proconsul was converted to Christianity, all of his power within the city would be eroded. Saul, being as equally bold for Christ as he had formerly been persecuting Christians, verbally rebuked Elamos. This was one of the most dramatic denunciations of demonic power in scripture. Instead of calling the sorcerer Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, Paul called him son of the devil. Barnabas and Paul recognized him for who he was, an opponent to the gospel. He was unrighteous as any man could be. After this public rebuke from Barnabas and Saul, later known as Paul, God was pleased and the name Saul, which had been infamous for the old man, his old way of life, He had changed now. He was now a new man that was reflected in the one consonant in his name, changing from the S to the P. He now would be known forevermore as Paul, and Paul means small or humble. Elymas operated in his carnality and was spiritually blind. Paul caused his physical blindness in obedience to God. Thus, this all-powerful man was minimized to being led around by another. The light of Christ's gospel was veiled to Elymas. He was not alone. Many others' minds, the God, Satan of this age, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And we know that God is a spirit. So how can a man be made in the image of God? Well, this passage isn't inferring that man's physical attributes mirror God's. Rather, it addresses the characteristics of mankind in all we are and do in the world. For instance, you hear me say that God is love because he first loved us. We are to love him and others. The image of God is our integrity discipline and righteousness in how we work, play, and show up for this gift we call life. Although Satan ultimately is defeated, God granted him power in our fallen world. Satan is the deceiver. He and his fallen angel army are masters at trickery in the human mind. One illusion they hold over many people is that Satan is God's equal. This just is not the case and is completely false. God created Satan, therefore he is a creature and not the creator. Knowing that Satan is a master at deception explains why it's easy for the powers of darkness to blind man from the revelation of Christ's gospel. When Paul was preaching in Ephesus, miracles glorified Christ. Paul showed people an authentic gospel which revealed a true spiritual reality. Upon learning of fellow countrymen healed from evil spirits and diseases, the people of the Ephesus church repented and confessed of their magic and books, burning them in the sight of all. When they counted up the value of them, it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Let me say that again. 
50,000 pieces of silver. The word of Jesus grew mightily and prevailed. But I want to put those 50,000 pieces of silver into perspective now. Compare this amount to the mere 30 pieces of silver that Judas Iscariot betrayed our Lord for. That is absolute ludicrous. This genuine repentance led to a revival of the people. Now this concludes our four-part series on curses, false witnesses, and false teachings. As we end in prayer today, we come before you, Father, from a position of peace. We are blessed to have had your word to fill our spirits with. We know that every day is a gift from you, and we do not take that for granted. Thank you for the favor upon our lives and upon our families' lives. Thank you for the hedge of protection around our families and our communities and the nation. We ask that you continue to teach us to hunger and thirst for your food and not for things that do not feed our souls. May our definitions of success match and mirror your will for our lives. Ultimately, we know that you are the greatest appraiser of all time. Communicate to us in clear ways the value you've placed in and on us, giving us the courage to go out into the world and multiply the kingdom wealth you've placed within our hearts. For we know that nothing is impossible when you are involved. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. And friends, if you have not been spiritually reborn, Jesus has made it clear to enter into the kingdom of heaven, a person must confess belief in God's son, Jesus. Listen to what the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. When we place our trust in Jesus, a divine exchange takes place. Jesus takes our sin, making us right with God. Our sin was placed onto Jesus at his crucifixion. His righteousness is given to us at our conversion. We can never repay this extraordinary gift of kindness back to Jesus. However, we can show him gratitude by growing in our relationship with him. We can make efforts to obey him, deepening our relationship daily. Today, friends, if this is you, take a bold step of courage. Openly confess after me, Father God, I'm repenting of sins, meaning I'm changing my ways of thinking. Jesus, I invite you to come into my heart. I confess your shed blood washed away my sin at the cross at Calvary. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer of salvation, I believe you were saved and born again spiritually. Your next step is to read God's word daily so he can guide, direct, and reveal himself to you. Now let me be the first person to congratulate you on making the most important decision of your lifetime. Congratulations and God bless you. 
And friends, the Grace and Peace of God Love Wins podcast will be available most days during the week. A special Kid Talk airs on Wednesdays when we're not in the middle of a series. So tune in with your children for your favorite Bible stories that you've grown up with. We'll be discussing and sharing Jesus's unlimited power in our present day lives. We delve into many topics such as forgiveness, spiritual warfare, how to be joyful, generational curses, what love in action looks like, biblical trust, and so many more. I invite you and your friends to come alongside me as we embark together on an adventure of exploration in all things Jesus. So join me, and if you like this episode, make sure to like and subscribe so you'll get the latest releases as they become available. And occasionally, I reference chapters straight out of my book, The Grace and Peace of God Love Wins. If you found content inspiring during these podcasts or compelling, feel free to pick up a copy from my website at pampastorcopywriting.com or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Dorrance.com. But importantly, friends, if you're unable to afford a copy, write to me. I will find a way to get you a free copy. You won't be disappointed. It it is full of God's word and it's waiting for you to read it. Until next time, remember, you've been marked and sealed with the cross of Jesus Christ forever. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Until next time, friends, God bless you.